lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Romans 15.4 says, The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There are two basic extremes that a person can take in regards to perspective on the use of the Old Testament. One is that because we're no longer bound by the regulations of either patriarchal or mosaic age, that the Old Testament is of no practical value to us whatsoever. The other extreme is to believe that we're still bound by the Old Testament regulations. Those, again, represent the two extremes. I believe the truth was represented in the passage just quoted, Romans 15, verse 4. It was written, and it has been preserved for our learning. And aren't you glad that it was? Thank you so much for being here this morning. We're grateful for the presence of every single one of you. And I was just thinking as we were singing that last song, I think the singing is probably as good as it's been in the last 14 months. Man, everybody's is singing. You sang like you had breakfast this morning. And, and man, it sounded wonderful. Thank you so much for being a part of, the, of this audience, this, this period of worship. If you will be turning in your Bibles or your devices to First, Cre- uh, First Samuel, rather, chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17. And I'm going to do my best as we walk through this intriguing story to point out each verse as we reference each one in turn. He was between six, or rather between nine and ten feet tall. He was a warrior that was so fierce that hardened veterans of battle dared not go up against him. They trembled in his presence. The Bible says that there was 40 days of jeers and taunts, and still no one from the Israelite camp dared go out and battle against Goliath. Goliath, of course, as you well know, was his name, and he was the vicious soldier who was cut down in his prime by a lowly shepherd boy. He lost the duel. His army lost the battle, and the career of Israel's greatest king had begun right here in 1 Samuel 17. It's all found in that passage. Well, actually, we're going to go back and reference verse six, uh, chapter 16 for just a moment. But we're told how David was sent to deliver a care package to his three brothers who were already on the battlefield, how he heard Goliath's insults, and he wondered aloud as to Israel's failure to reply, how his brothers told him to mind his own business. Even as King Saul heard about David's courageous talk and sent for him, and how David volunteered for hazardous duty, and then to refuse the finest weapons and the finest armor that could be made available, and how that with five stones and a simple sling, he alone whipped the man who had single-handedly kept Israelite army at bay for over a month. How the Israelite army then routed the Philistines in one of the most lopsided defeats in all of the history of warfare. And how that David delivered to Saul the head of Goliath, severed with his own sword. And when we read the account, and I know that you know the story, you can't help but look at it and marvel and say how bold, how courageous, and what faith. The story, as we mentioned, actually begins in chapter 16. First Samuel. If you got your Bible open, you might want to again track through these passages as we point them out. The Bible says that God had rejected Saul as being king because of personal spiritual weaknesses. 
That's pointed out specifically in verse 7. And the, the prophet Samuel had said, now God, I want you to know, looks and evaluates a person differently than we do. While man looks at the outside, the appearance, and Saul had all of those credentials, he looked like king material. He had spiritual failings that caused God to reject him from being king of Israel. And so that's pointed out, of course, in verse 7 of chapter 16. Samuel was charged with the job of then finding a new man to anoint as king of Israel. So Jesse parades seven of his sons before Samuel. And according to verse 10, Samuel, as he looks and evaluates each of those sons, says, no, none of these are the one. Finally, David the baby is brought in, and he was a bright, good-looking boy, and Samuel says he's the one. And he anoints David, and the Spirit of the Lord, the Bible says, came upon David from that day forward. That's verse 13, chapter 16. David became invaluable to Saul because he would soothe him by playing the heart. Verses 17 through 23 discusses that. Some have suggested that perhaps King Saul was given to depression, and so the playing of, of the harp would soothe his troubled spirit. David became Saul's armor bearer. And the only thing that I can liken that to is that he was somewhat like the manager on a ball team. He was responsible for all of his equipment, and that was a position of great responsibility. But chapter 17 then opens in the heat of conflict. The Philistines, the Bible says, were encamped on Israelite land between Soko and Azekah. That's verse 1. The army of Israel was encamped in the valley of Elah, and they were preparing to do battle with the Philistines. And when I say they were preparing to do battle, I mean that very loosely. Because so far, no arrows had flown, no swords had been swung. All that they were doing was talking. And they were doing quite a bit of that. And most of it was listening. As they were listening to Goliath taunt them from the other side of the valley. Because we have to understand something of the geography to appreciate fully what's going on here. The Bible says the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. The Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And they were basically at this point in a staring and shouting contest. Well, just here we need to add one more character to the mix. Well, actually we're not adding him. We're we're reintroducing him. The Bible says that Goliath from Gath was the fiercest, meanest, leanest fighting machine that the Philistine army had to offer. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he was six cubits and a span, which would have been, some again, between nine and ten feet tall. And I want you to know that's big by any measuring stick. In fact, I came in to the auditorium this week as I was studying on this lesson, and I thought, if I could just somehow get envision for you exactly how tall nine and a half feet is, And so I measured the wall in the opening behind me, and here's what I found. Nine and a half feet, actually the top of the apex of of this arch is about ten feet, and so nine and a half feet is right there. By southern standards, that's huge. This was a big guy. And no wonder just his physical presence was intimidating. And no wonder the Israelite army on one side of the valley said, we need to think very carefully. We need to think this through before we go exchanging swords with this guy. The Bible even supplies some detail for us about his armor. 
For example, his coat of mail weighed 5,000 shekels. You're probably thinking, that doesn't mean a thing to me. That's 125 pounds, just the coat of mail. That would be the equivalent to a Kevlar vest, except it was made from steel, and so it would be quite heavy. 125 pounds, can you imagine? And then his spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. Again, out of curiosity this week, I have some weights at my house, each one weighing 15 pounds. And I found if I use all of my strength and exert every physical effort that I have, I can throw 15 pounds to the floor. (laughs) The spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. And on top of that, he had a shoe bear running interference for him. That's like LeBron James driving the paint and me telling him, I'll set a pick for you. He doesn't need me. And Goliath didn't need anyone to protect him, but he did need someone to carry that awesome heavy shield of his. And and then in verse 8 of chapter 17, if you're still following along in your Bible, the Bible says, he cries out across the valley to the armies of Israel, and he says, why do you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? In other words, why do you would ever think that you could do battle with me? And then he goes on to say and says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Well, he fleshes that deal out a little bit in the next verses when he says, if Israel's champion is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you will serve us. That's verse 9. And then to shame the Israelites into action, he gets it very explicit. And he says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That's verse 10. That again is the equivalent of saying, I double dog dare you. I I defy the armies of Israel. Now, keep that in your mind because that's going to be important in just a moment. And when Saul and the Israelites heard Goliath's challenge, they were distressed and afraid. And, and I could imagine that's probably because they didn't have anybody in their army over seven feet tall. No one that could go out and do battle one-on-one with Goliath. Interstage left, the shepherd boy, David. In verses 12 through 25 of chapter 17, specifically in verse 12, we're reintroduced to David. And I remind you that he is the, the youngest son. He's the baby boy. He's the youngest son of Jesse. He's one of eight brothers, the three oldest of which have already gone down to the recruiting station and have signed up and joined the Israelite army. And their names were Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. That's verse 13. David was given charge of tending to his father's sheep, and the Bible says that that would require him on occasion to take them all the way to Bethlehem. And so it wasn't a situation where he would just take the sheep to one field and stay there for the rest of the day. Sometimes there was some moving around, and this was no exception. While David was off tending sheep, Goliath was, the Bible says in verse 16, coming out and issuing his challenge to the armies of Israel. And he was doing that every single day. And he did that for 40 days. Now, you would think at some point, about halfway through, somebody would kill this guy just to shut him up. But for 40 days, the Bible says, and every day, morning and evening, he would come out just to remind them that he was still there and that he was still issuing the challenge. Well, Jesse, the father, has sent David with a care package to take to David's brothers on the battlefield. 
And Jesse the father has asked David to bring back word as to how his three soldier sons are doing. That's verses 17 and 18. And David got up early one morning. He, he's an obedient son. He does what the father asked him to do, and he does it promptly, and he, he arrives at the place of battle. And it just so happens that the Israelite army is about to go out and fight. Well, again, I say that loosely. They're, they're still pondering about what they should do about the Goliath situation. And they were in, in the middle of a pep rally. Verse 20 seems to indicate they were trying to pump themselves up psychologically to do battle. David approaches the army of Israel. He finds his brothers, he gives them the care package, and then he starts talking to them. And this time, when Goliath comes out and starts bad-mouthing and trash-talking Israel, David is there to hear it. And not only that, he sees the reaction of the men of Israel, the, the men who are the soldiers who ought to be fighting. And, and, and when they see Goliath, verse 24 says they began to run in the opposite direction. And the Israelites are trying to pop, prop up their own egos by ruminating, talking about how wonderful it would be if somebody could actually defeat Goliath. That's, that's verse 25. Take a look at it. And they say something along these lines. Have you seen that guy? Surely he has come to defy the armies of Israel. Well, do you think? How long did it take you to figure that out? Since he's done that twice a day for 40 days, and he has prefaced it by saying, I defy the armies of Israel. And so all of a sudden, the Israelite armies are saying, I think he's here to defy us. And then they began to think, well, the king would sign a check. I mean, a blank check for, for the man who kills this guy. I bet the king would give that man his daughter in marriage. And his, and his family would never have to pay property taxes again. And so they're just ruminating, thinking about and talking about how wonderful it would be if someone actually could muster the courage to go out and fight and defeat this man. The Bible says that David accepts the challenge. This is verses 26 through 40. When David hears all, the, all this being talked about and all this being said, he says to those Israelite soldiers, verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be defying the armies of Israel? And when Eliab, that's David's oldest brother, hears that kind of defiant talk, rather than commending David for his courage, the Bible says that he gets angry at David. And he says to David, in essence, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, why did you come down here? One thing I really want us to lock in on on his reply to David was he asked him this question, and where are the sheep that you're supposed to be tending? Did you see the implication there? That you're irresponsible. That, that dad has given you just one job, and you're not doing it very well. And then he goes on to say, I know the pride in your heart, and I know why you're really here. You're here to see the battle. Well, big brother missed it only by degree. David wasn't there to see the battle. He was there to be the battle. And David says in verse 29, what's wrong with that? Is there not a cause? And then he turns and he asks the same question again of the soldiers who are standing nearby. Who is this Philistine to be defying the armies of Israel? And, and they gave him the same answer as before. They said, he's the, he's the biggest fellow we've ever seen. That's who. And the word of David's conversation gets back to King Saul and Saul, as a result, sends for David. He wants to hear more from this guy who at least is courageous enough to talk courageously about meeting Goliath. And 
Verse 32 says that when David comes into Saul's presence, he says to him, don't let anybody get a heart attack over this guy. I'll go and fight this Philistine. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was the essence of his conversation. And Saul kind of laughs and says, you're not able to fight this Philistine. You're just a boy. I'll remind you that he's been a warrior all of his life and he'd have you for lunch, but David isn't through. And I believe one of the keys to David's great victory is found in verses 34 through 36. Andrew read one of those verses a moment ago, but I want us to appreciate what's taking place here. This is the the defense, the explanation that David gives to King Saul. When King Saul says, basically, tell me why you think that you should go out and fight this, this giant. And and David's reply is, in essence, Sir King, you probably think that just because I'm a boy that I've never been in in any kind of danger. But there were many times when when I was, as a shepherd, had to rescue a lamb from from the jaws of a lion or the jaws of a bear. And then he delivered the clinching argument in verse 37 when he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I hope you got all of that. All of a sudden, there's a new variable in the equation because David has now introduced God to the story. The God who empowered me to be able to confront and then defeat danger as a shepherd will empower me to defeat this Goliath. He's basically saying, it's the same God, just different enemies. And so Saul reluctantly agrees. I mean, who else is going to go? Nobody else has volunteered. He has older men. He has bigger men. And certainly he has more men who are experienced in battle. But none of them are willing to go. It would be the equivalent of a suicide mission to anyone in their right mind. And so David has volunteered. And they start outfitting David in all the heavy armor of a fighting man, the bronze helmet, the, the coat of mail, and all of the rest of those things that you would normally wear when you went into, into combat, either on a horse or on, on foot as, as you're dealing with hand-to-hand combat. But the Bible says that, that when David fastened his sword to the armor and all that that he had put on, and he tried to walk to try out the equipment that he couldn't even walk, and so he took them off. May I proffer an incidental but important lesson just here? On the New Testament side of things in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us who are fighting our spiritual warfare, put on the whole armor of God. And the lesson is simply this. Do not try to win your battle wearing someone else's armor. But here, Saul has agreed to, to David's proposition He's tried on the armor. It didn't work. So he immediately begins taking off all of those things. And and, and instead of wearing all of that heavy armor and taking the sword and the spear and all the things that you would normally take into battle, he took in, in his hand his shepherd's staff. That's going to explain something that Goliath will say in just a moment. Takes the shepherd's staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in his shepherd's pouch. He took his sling in hand and then he trekked resolutely out into the valley to meet the nine and a half foot Philistine. Now the battle is actually waged in verses 41 through 54. Goliath and his shield bearer come out to meet David basically halfway. Again, remember they're on uh, opposing mountains looking at one another across the valley. And so they meet halfway and, and, and when Goliath got a good look at David, he is incredibly angry. 
because the warrior, the warrior, and I put that in air quotes, representing the Israelite army is just a boy. And not just that, looking like he just stepped off the cover of GQ magazine, if you know what I'm talking about. He does not look like a warrior by any stretch of the imagination. And then Goliath roars and says, am I a dog that you would come at me with a stick? He's referring, I think, to David's shepherd's staff. And then he began to profane David using all the, the gods that he had in his vernacular. And then he says, in essence, if that's the way you want it, Come on and I'll tear you to pieces and I'll feed your carcass to the birds and the beasts of the field. David replies in classic faithful fashion. Look at verse 45. You come to me, he said to Goliath, with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord God of the army, or of God of hosts, of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And furthermore, David went on to say, This day the Lord will deliver me, you, into my hand. And I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the, uh, the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines. D- did you see what just happened? I, we're not only going to defeat you, we're going to defeat your whole army. We're going to feed their carcasses to the birds and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then everybody here will know that the Lord doesn't save with sword and spear, for the battle belongs to the Lord. That'd make a good song, wouldn't it? And then he goes on to say, and he will give you into our hands. That's verses 46 and 47. Goliath, hears all that he can stand, comes toward David to do battle. David incredibly begins to run. But to Goliath's surprise, in fact, to Goliath's great surprise, he's not running away like the Israelite armies have been doing for the last 40 days. He's running toward Goliath. David reaches into his pouch, takes out one of the stones that he has selected, fits it carefully and quickly into his sling, whirls it round and round until it has achieved sufficient centrifugal force, and he lets it go. The stone whistles through the air, strikes the charging Goliath right in the forehead with such force that it actually sinks in, and Goliath face plants into the ground. And so it is that David, without a sword, even in his hand, kills the mighty Philistine warrior. David runs and he stands over Goliath. He takes Goliath's own sword out of his scabbard and he cuts his head off with it. And when the Philistine army sees that their champion is now dead, they suddenly remember appointments they have elsewhere and phone calls they must make. And the men of Israel and Judah jump up and shout and chase the Philistines all the way up the valley, the Bible says, to the gates of Ekron. And then they come back and they plunder the spoils of the Philistines and they take whatever it is that they desire. And meanwhile, David takes the head of Goliath and brings it to Jerusalem. But he keeps Goliath's army, or armor, I should say, he keeps that for his trophy case. That's verse 54. Now, one of the most humorous, maybe humorous is too strong of a word, but whimsical parts of the story has to be found in verses 55 and 56. Check it out before we end this lesson. When Saul sees David go out to do battle with Goliath, he inquires of Abner, who happens to be the commander of the army, Abner, whose boy is this? Whose son is this? And Abner says, in essence, as your soul lives, O king, I don't have the foggiest. Let that also be a lesson to us. You do not have to be well-known 
or well-publicized to do God's will. In fact, it has been my observation and my experience, the greatest champions in the Lord's army today are those that you never see, those who are behind the scenes. Now, there's a couple of takeaways that I want us to appreciate, a couple of lessons before we conclude this lesson. First of all, David knew, he absolutely knew, there was no doubt in his mind that the victory did not lie in his own hands, but in the hands of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might is what Paul says about our spiritual battle in Ephesians 6 and verse 10. And I want us to know that that's where the real power is. It's not in a sling and in a stone, but it's in a sovereign God who always keeps his promises. And like those around him, David saw himself probably more accurately than any other saw, saw him. I mean, his brothers were constantly criticizing and ridiculing him, especially when he said, I want to I fight this giant. His brothers would have none of that because all they could see was little brother. But David understood that. He, he, understood, he had a proper assessment of himself, and he knew that he was young, and he knew that he was inexperienced, at least in this kind of battle, and that he was smart enough to know that merely wearing armor and looking like a warrior did not somehow turn a, a boy into a soldier. And he also knew what those around him had forgotten, and that is that a world existed beyond the narrow confines of that valley that they had been looking across for weeks. It was a world where God was still in charge. Are you hearing me, church? It was a world where God is still in charge, a world where God helped people win their battles. May I remind you, as he still does. The second takeaway, the second lesson would be, and please don't miss this because it's so vitally important, but part, part of this story that we can't miss, David knew that he had been prepared for this conflict by battles that he had already fought. That's the way we're trained to do God's will. We don't go out and fight a giant on day one after we get out of the baptistry. We learn how to be able to deal and to defeat the, the enemies of the cross one at a time. We learn how to, to, to win those small victories day by day by doing God's will in a way that will never get the newspaper or maybe even be written up in the church bulletin. And David understood that those things that had taken place as he was a shepherd out in the fields were not isolated events. They were part of a, a greater scheme of, of his training for this combat, for this day, for this point of destiny in his life. I know you've heard about the big burly man who invited his small friend to go bear hunting with him. And his small friend said, no, I don't think I'll go because I'm afraid. And the big friend began to tease him somewhat. And the little fellow said, well, if I was as big as you, I wouldn't be afraid to go bear hunting either. And his big friend said, there's bears in the woods your size too. Remember, there are bears your size. And we can defeat those bears and eventually we'll be able to defeat the giants in our lives. Some folks, I think, in the church like to think that we would make the ultimate sacrifice for the Lord. That if it came down to it, I, I would give my life for his cause and in his service. But sadly, some of those same Christians are not willing to do the little things day by day that constitute Christian service and Christian living. So I'm asking you this morning, are you fighting the small battles and winning them 
in the Lord's name and for his cause before you ever go out and fight that giant. Jesus said, and this is why I'm so certain about this point, in Luke 16 and verse 10, Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least of matters is is also going to be unjust in much. Again, Luke 16, verse 10. So the question for us today is not, if I had a million dollars, how much of that would I spend in, in supporting missionaries in foreign fields? Or if I were retired, how much time would I actually spend in kingdom service? No, the question for all of us is, what are you using the small time and money that you do have in his service and for his cause? You see, in gaining victory in the battles against the lion of the bear, David had gained confidence and a greater conviction in God's protection. And that's why this lesson is entitled, Before You Fight a Giant, You've Got to Kill a Bear. And along with that conviction came a determination to never let God down. And he was able to project greater victories based on the smaller ones. I'll remind you one more time of verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That was the conviction that David had based on faith. One final question that usually is asked of me whenever I preach a lesson like this on this subject. Why five stones? Somebody has suggested that's in case Goliath had four brothers. By the way, a matter of biblical record. Sit down for five minutes this afternoon and read 2 Samuel 21. And you will find that David did have four brothers. The language is a little uncertain. It's possible that they were sons, but sons or brothers, it doesn't matter. David, eventually down the road, dispatched with them as well. You see, from David we learn what it means to stand for the Lord in the toughest of times. We may never have to fight a a literal giant, I hope not, in our lives. But you and I know that we have giants of another sort that are figurative in nature that we have to fight every day. We may be married to an unbelieving and a rebellious spouse. We may have problems with our our children. We may have physical difficulties. We're, We're fighting giants every day in our lives, aren't we? And we also learn that life is made up of many battles that come in different sizes. So successful faith isn't tackling just the biggest foes. It's learning to confront the foes that we face, no matter what size they may be. It's seeing that every battle adds to our growth as souls, that that every victory is in fact a a triumph for God. I know you've heard the story, I've told it several times, of Dr. Livingston, who spent many years exploring Africa. And on one of those occasions, he came back to the United States and was asked by a reporter, were you bothered by the rogue elephants while you were in Africa? You may remember his response. He said, no, we were not bothered at all by the rogue elephants. The mosquitoes, on the other hand, were murder. I think that's probably the case for most of us, isn't it? We're not bothered by the elephants in our lives. We're bothered by the mosquitoes that bite us constantly. I'm asking you, are you winning the small battles? Are you making the small sacrifices? Are you saying the right words at the right time, a word spoken for Jesus that could lead someone into a saved relationship with the Lord himself? 
Are you doing those things on campus that allow others to know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Not an in-your-face, I want to be obnoxious follower, but you're one who's determined and committed every day that I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm going to do the small things, and I'm going to say the small words, and I'm going to recognize that life is composed of all of those small decisions that we make day by day. It's not just fighting the Goliaths in our lives. It's fighting the mosquitoes. The battle going on now, I remind you, is not physical. It's spiritual in nature. It's against principalities and powers and authorities in high places. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we can ensure ourselves of the victory by getting on the winning side. John ends that great book of Revelation. What a perfect way to end God's holy book. By saying in chapter 17 verse 14, you know the passage. As he's describing the enemies of the cross, these will make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. All that you and I have to do to make sure that we're on the winning side is to to follow the Lamb. To make sure that we are each day walking in his footsteps. And, And today that may mean that you need to become a child of God. To make that decision to follow Jesus every day of your life. And if you haven't made that decision, and if you've never been baptized into Christ, what better time than right now while we stand and while we sing?